I'm Rachel, the creative director for Ramdas's Love Serve Remember Foundation, and I'd like to welcome you to our Inner Academy, a virtual Dharma Hall where our family of wisdom teachers will help you navigate your daily life by bringing ancient wisdom into a modern context. With over 200 hours of audio and video teachings, meditations, and practices from teachers like Ramdas, Krishnadas, Sharon Salzberg, Jack Kornfield, Roshi Joan Halifax, Joseph Goldstein, and many more. The Inner Academy is your core resource for finding balance, presence, and navigating the ups and downs of your daily life. The Inner Academy has guidance for every step of your journey. Choose from an annual or monthly membership and gain access to past and future courses, retreat replays, virtual community, and much more. If you've been familiar with Love Server Member Foundation for a while, you'll know that most of our offerings are given freely or on a sliding scale basis. So when you subscribe to the Inner Academy, you're paying it forward and bolstering our ability to continue creating accessible offerings for all in the future, as Ramdas wished for us to do. Be here now and start your journey with Ramdas's Inner Academy today. For more, visit ramdas.org forward slash inner academy. Teaching meditation can be a deeply rewarding experience. Help others improve their mental and emotional well-being reduce stress, improve focus, increase self-awareness and self-regulation, all while deepening your own practice and understanding. Join acclaimed author, Buddhist teacher, and Emmy Award-winning musician David Nickturn on Tuesday, May 28th at 6 p.m. Eastern Time for a free online discussion on teaching meditation in Dharma Moon's renowned Mindfulness Meditation Teacher Training Program. Get certified by Dharma Moon to teach meditation lead group practice sessions, and work with individual students. Visit dharmamoon.com slash be here now for more info and to reserve your spot for the free online event with David Nickturn on May 28th. Welcome to Dale Borglum's Healing at the Edge. We are very happy to share with you Dale's profound insight and open heart. Please go to BeHereNowNetwork.com slash Dale to support this podcast. So far we've been talking about a developmental spiritual path that works really well with feelings like grief and anxiety and fear. And in terms of the pandemic, I think for many of People, those are the primary emotions that were arising. Times have changed in the last couple of weeks. And for many people, one of the more prevalent emotions these days is anger. No matter, once again, what side of the political aisle you're sitting on, there's anger at either the protesters slash looters or the police slash politicians who are enabling police to do some of the things that are happening. Anger is a very, very hot emotion that is, for many people, myself certainly included, difficult to work with just by being aware of it. What does anger feel like? What is it like in my body? I've been trying to do that for many decades. (laughs) I won't say it's been remarkably unsuccessful, but Anger keeps arising, sometimes in a reactive way, sometimes in a very appropriate way. But if we look at this healing paradigm that we've been talking about, going from 
being motivated, you're going to die, but you don't know when, to this first step that I call invocation, that includes conscious embodiment, grounding and centering, mindfulness, Vipassana meditation, seeing how suffering actually arises, and then moving to the stage of compassion. Can we keep the heart open in suffering? Uh, to suffering, can we keep the heart open to everything? Then finally, we get to the next stage of practice, which is called Tantra. I got a phone call last night from a very dear friend of mine who escaped the country for his second home in Guatemala, right as the uh, lockdowns were happening. He got out of, he got on one of the last planes out of Los Angeles to Guatemala. And I mentioned to him that I was going to talk about Tantra today, and he kind of scoffed at me and said that, well, there's a hippie community down there on Lake Titatlan where he is in Guatemala, and they, they, they talk about Tantra all the time, and he thought it was kind of like a hippie thing, right? And certainly in America, one of the first things we think about when we hear the word Tantra is tantric sex, and Tantra is a very kind of a hip thing in a certain way. But in fact, Tantra is a very, very ancient tradition. Tantric sexuality is just a, such a teeny small part of what it is that, that Tantra is really about. And Tantra is, in a sense, the ability to go beyond having devotion to an outside deity, uh, thinking that here's me, here's God out there, to beginning to realize that I myself, whatever that I is, and all of creation is the beloved. Tantra literally means to weave. We're weaving this heart condition that we've just previously cultivated into our lives. Previously, we've been essentially talking about renunciation through awareness or even gradually transforming obstacles through compassion. But now we're seeing everything as a manifestation of the divine, as a manifestation of the divine mother. In a sense, yoga teaches suppression with awareness, and tantra teaches indulgence with awareness. <laughs> so in some way, that's, that's much more interesting and exciting. Oh, we can indulge. The problem is, if you haven't gone through these other initiations of embodiment, awareness, compassion, and just go right into Tantra, you can very easily get lost there, which many people, and including many spiritual teachers do. There are many teachers out there who say, I'm a Tantric teacher, which means I can have sex with you and I can take your money. And of course, almost all of them are pretty profoundly deluded. So Tantra is releasing all of our goals and attainments. We're letting go of attachments through love. Tantra teaches that every cell of creation is filled with pure awareness. Consequently, when we begin this work with anger, which uh, is, will be part of the discussion today, it's a much more appropriate discussion to work with anger from a tantric perspective than to just try to be aware of it. Certainly, you can be just aware of it. And, uh, but as I say, for many people, myself certainly included, that has not been the easiest practice. The Dalai Lama himself says that he has a hot temper. 
So that in a way, a tantra is an ongoing dialogue between the male and female energies of the universe. In Hindu tantra, everything that can be experienced, form, energy, thought, all matter, all stuff, anything that can be experienced is the mother. And the male energy is the unmanifest absolute. So that the notion is that if I look at my, my, my uh, tea mug here, that in a way this is the mother, it's form, it's stuff, it's ceramic, but it's interpenetrated by the absolute male unmanifest. Interestingly, quantum mechanics has recently proved what ancient tantric wisdom has been saying for thousands of years. And what it's been saying is that people are living in a delusion. And the delusion is that there is a separate objective reality out there that we individuals are perceiving through our sensory apparatus. That when I hold this up, everybody, all the little thumbnails on my screen are seeing this thing that I'm holding up in Fairfax, California, that we are receiving apparatuses or apparati, whatever the word is. We're receiving this visual impression. And what Tantra and what quantum mechanics says is, no, that's backwards. That there is one consciousness that flows through our individual filters and creates reality. And you may remember that a week or two ago when we did that emotional shifting exercise where we said, I am afraid, uh, I'm aware of fear, I feel that I'm aware of fear. Uh, one of the last stages was that fear and awareness are one. Seeing this and being aware of seeing this are inextricably bound. There's no seeing this without awareness of seeing, that it is in effect all consciousness. I've had two close family members die of pancreatic cancer, my brother and my mother, so that every year now I go in and get an endoscopy to see that if I have any bad things growing on my pancreas, which pancreatic cancer is really not a bad cancer, except that it's almost never caught till it's too late to do anything about it. So I go in and I get a screen. Now think about it. If I'm starting to feel some pain down in my pancreas or having digestive problems, as long as it's not in human consciousness that, that I have pancreatic cancer. The doctor hasn't taken a picture. There, there's no pancreatic cancer. It's just pain in my body or it's just digestive problems. So that the Western medical model is based on this delusion. I'm not saying Western medicine isn't very useful at times, but to the extent that we can fall back, to, at times at least, to this other way of looking at reality, that we're creating reality, that we're creating our bodies, that physical reality is interior to consciousness, that the mind creates the brain. The brain doesn't create the mind, okay? That we have a very different relationship then with illness and with, with uh, things being out of balance. So just as an example, uh, some of you have heard me tell this story before, but it's one of my favorite scientific experiments, which points to the nature of, of Tantra. They found some people, scientists found some people who were good at, they had psychic powers. They, they could affect reality to a certain extent. So they 
developed a machine that essentially flipped the coin thousands and thousands of times. It was actually subatomic particles decaying. But let's just, for the sake of talking about it, suggest that there's uh, a coin that's being flipped 10,000 times. So they said to these people, we're running this experiment now. Can you visualize that it's going to turn up heads? And there were people that could do this in a highly statistically significant way. Then they said, we're going to do it tomorrow. Could you today visualize that tomorrow it's going to turn up heads? And once again, there are people that could do this in a highly statistically significant way. But the interesting part, I mean, what I've said so far is kind of, yeah. But the interesting part is they said, we ran the experiment yesterday. Could you today visualize that yesterday it turned up heads? And what do you think happened? Who would like to answer that question? It turned up heads. Not so simple, John. What they found out, that if anybody had looked at the results from yesterday, all the visualizations had no effect whatsoever. It was purely random. But if the results were only in a computer hard drive and had not entered into human consciousness, then people could affect the past. That's wild. Isn't that interesting? That it really hadn't happened until it entered into human consciousness. So cancer doesn't happen until the the radiologist looks at the picture and says, oh, you've got cancer, right? So (laughs) something to think about. So that in Tantra, we're really finding ultimate reality through our relationship with relative reality. We're not trying to transcend the world. Tantra is a lot about being in our senses, inhabiting our body, our body as a microcosm of the entire universe. It invites us to re-enter the world with an intensity that allows us to see difficulty as an opportunity. So that in the earlier stages of practice, we tend to see difficulty as problem. In Vipassana, and this is an oversimplification, if you're a Buddhist, which I'm not, don't get mad at me, But the notion is you become aware of your anger and you replace it with something wholesome. In Mahayana practice, you're aware of your anger and you have compassion. You gradually transform your anger through compassion into something wholesome. In Tantra, anger's God. In fact, anger is really the same energy as the Vajra cutting through energy that distinguishes wisdom from ignorance. It's the same energy. It's just a bit misguided at times. Okay, and anger, there's nothing wrong with anger. Anger, as I say, just as much God is not anger. The problem is that because of our our conditioning, we tend to get caught in anger. We get lost in anger. Conscious anger is a a righteous response to a lot that is going on in the world. I mean, I'm sure everybody in this room has looked at videos of police being angry at looters, looters being angry at stores. I've got a a very dear friend who owns a very big business in Oakland, and his business was looted. Huge plate glass windows were broken. Stuff was stolen. He is very angry at the looters. (laughs) The looters are angry at the police. The police are angry at the looter, I mean, it's like, it's, it's just, it's, everybody is having this part of their being exposed. 
A tantric practitioner, though, tends to honor all beings because we're working towards seeing it all as the face of the divine. My guru Maharaji was asked, what is the best form in which to worship God? He said, every form. The best form to worship God is every form. And that doesn't just mean Hanuman and Shiva and Durga. It means you and me. It means that we're all there as this manifestation of the divine. But this can be dangerous if we don't have a foundation in awareness and compassion. Tibetan Buddhism, Vajrayana Buddhism, Tantric Buddhism, is largely based on the notion of empowerment. Empowerment in the sense that you have gone deeply enough into mindfulness and compassion that you can now begin to directly experience that you are the deity, that you are the deity yourself. It's not something out there and that the power of the deity flows through you. But it's not your power, it's the power. But when people in our society get caught in their power, I'm the president, I'm the policeman, I'm the, I'm the looter, I'm the whatever it might be. I'm the self-righteous protester, whatever part of the whole equation you're part of. When you think it's your power, it's very easy to get lost there. So why don't we just think about the, the really basic and yet powerful example of saying a mantra from these different stages of practice. From, from the stage of invocation, of mindfulness, of, of trusting being present, we start saying a mantra or a prayer from the standpoint of, I have some trust, but I'm not feeling it right now. I'm saying God's name, hoping to form a relationship. Maybe I've had the relationship in the past. Maybe uh, I know that other people have, but right now it's kind of a mental thing. I'm, I'm trying to prime the pump. I'm saying please God show up in some way. You're saying Ram, 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 and it just sounds, it's not really a connection. And as that deepens, and that might take 10 seconds or 10 years, depending on how stubborn you are, then it turns into a, a relationship that you're saying God's name and it's, it's your, you're having a relationship with the beloved. There's a back and forth. There's this very juicy thing going on. But there's you and there's God out there that you're in relationship with. But then the tantric stage, it becomes revealed because your heart is so open and the ego sense is just one object in the mind. It's not centrally located anymore. It's just one thing and all the many things you can pay attention to, that you can pay attention to the ego, that it becomes revealed that this God is your own true nature. It's not something outside. It's not up in heaven. It's everything. The beloved can only be everything. So that you are white Tara, you are Hanuman, you are the Divine Mother, you are our Buddha. Now, once again, you can see that this could be a, a kind of a dangerous concept if you don't have a firm sense of uh, foundation so you're not getting lost in all this power that's flowing through you. And the spiritual path is littered with so many teachers who got caught in this stage of thinking how great it is to have all this power flowing through. The final stage of practice, which we'll talk about next week, is non-duality. In Tantra, there's still a me who is the divine. Next week, we'll find out that there's not even a me. <laughs> it's just, it's, it's, all, it's all one taste, if you will. So we've gone from this first stage of practice of 
awareness practice of sort of wishfully thinking, wishfully hoping that things are going to be getting better through awareness, through compassion practice, where we see the empty of nature, uh, empty nature of things, to the tantric stage, where it's about the energy of what it is that's going on. It's just energy. It's the mother in this particular form. And in a way, it's, it's impersonal or transpersonal, and yet profoundly personal at the same time. So that this notion that you are God is really dangerous if it's only conceptual, but when it becomes the result of direct experience through practice, it is a profoundly life-changing event. Anais Nin, if you limit your choices to only what seems reasonable and possible, you disconnect yourself from what you truly want, and all that is left is compromise. So that Tantra is beginning to admit that we're everything, and we're not compromising. We're, we're, we have enough foundation of embodied awareness, of, of open-heartedness, that we can begin to bear exactly how vast we are, so that we're no longer approaching practice from the standpoint of inadequacy and need and poverty, but rather of fullness and romance. It's a very different approach to practice, that it's not like I need to get somewhere because I'm broken, I'm wounded, my life isn't good enough, I'm suffering too much. But instead, no, there is this fullness. There, I am pure consciousness. Everything is pure consciousness. I can dance with this. It's, as I said before, Tantra means to weave. We're weaving that profound understanding that we are consciousness, that everything is consciousness into all of our activity. Mother Teresa would talk about when she would take a leper out of the gutter in Calcutta, she'd talk about seeing Christ in his distressing disguise. And Maharaji would say, see all women as the mother. These are just techniques to having a tantric relationship with life, that it, it's, it's all the divine. And that, that notion of Christ in his distressing disguise, I think, is a very powerful one, because when we look around this virtual room here, people have really good disguises, right? I look like Dale in Fairfax. Look, I've got my, uh, my, my beads on and my meditation shirt or whatever it is, and Yet, when you see a, a, a beggar in Calcutta, or you see uh, some, somebody like that, their, their disguise is so tattered that it's easier to see the God within. Can we begin to see through that disguise, even when we look in the mirror? That's the, that's the, the hardest disguise of all for, for most of us. Can we see... Donald Trump thinks he's got such a strong disguise. The police, they've got a uniform, they've got shields on, uh, they've got really good disguises. Some people's disguises are much better put together than others, but it's our job to, to see beyond those disguises. And when we talk about seeing it all as the mother, in the West, we tend to think of the mother as protective, nurturing, nice. There are certainly depictions of the mother in Eastern religions that are very fierce and wrathful, that the mother devours, the mother consumes impurity, the mother consumes fear, the mother feeds on anger, the mother, so that 
this process of purification also is a relationship with the mother. It's not just she's protecting us and feeding us and taking care of us like a nice mother, but she's the one that's devouring the stuff that's keeping us from realizing who we actually are. The beloved can only be everything, even this. I mean, my son, who was 17, says, Dad, I feel like I'm living through history for the first time in my life. You you got to go through Kennedy being assassinated and the Vietnam War and this and that and the first landing on the moon. And he's he's really feeling that the, the country, even the world is changing on a day-to-day basis. Can one not get caught up in the details of that, but realize from a more global perspective or more collective perspective, this is all divine, even though there's a wrathful quality to the whole unfolding. Once again, we can use Tantra to work with strong emotions. From the standpoint of Vipassana, Hinayana, we become aware of emotions. From the standpoint of Mahayana, we have compassion for he or she who is feeling emotions. And from the standpoint of Tantra, we begin to see that the emotion also is a part of the divine unfolding. It doesn't mean that we don't still work to purify. It doesn't mean that we still don't work with having compassion for other beings. But it's coming from the standpoint of richness and wholeness and connectedness rather than of poverty and need and trying to fix things. There's a dance out here in the western part of America called the the country two-step. I have a dance I call the tantric three-step. And the first step is, can you be aware of what's going on? The second step is, uh, have compassion for it. And the third step, which is harder to describe in a few words, particularly as we're dancing, is dropping into this tantric stage. So tantra can be the unfolding that takes place over decades of practice. It can also be something that happens over the unfolding of one second or 10 seconds relationship with an emotion or an experience. You're aware of it, you feel it, you let go of the story, you open your heart to it, and you realize that this too is the beloved. And you just keep surrendering into this being the beloved. It's it's a, a very supportive, juicy, satisfying practice. Let me read you a, a few quotes from some of my favorite teachers, and then we'll talk about some other ways of actually doing tantric practice. Trungpa Rinpoche says, when there is any concept of a higher being which is external, there is also an internal identification with a lower ego. In Buddhist devotional practices, we create an open space before doing any devotional practice of mantra or visualization, going into the formlessness of the heart. We are not trying to get or accomplish anything. One just identifies with the feeling of devotion rather than having the devotion be a demand. And my first meditation teacher, teacher Suzuki Roshi said, when you bow to Buddha, you should have no idea of Buddha, which is to become one with Buddha himself. When you become one with Buddha, one with everything that exists, you find the true meaning of being. When you forget all your dualistic ideas, 
everything becomes your teacher and everything can be an object of worship. Everything can be an object of worship. And at another point, he went on to say, I don't know anything about consciousness. I just try to teach my students how to hear the birds sing. Those were all uh, very much pointing toward a tantric relationship with life, a tantric relationship with practice. Tantra focuses on direct experience rather than conceptual learning. There is an emphasis on the energy of the situation, on cultivating sensory experience, on recognizing the mother in all experience. What are some ways to actually cultivate a tantric relationship with our lives? One of them, as I mentioned before, is saying mantra from a tantric perspective, where you start out cultivating the relationship, then you feel the relationship. But then you realize that this, this beloved that you were invoking in the beginning is none other than your true self. From a standpoint of visualization, that same thing could be called guru yoga, where you imagine, you visualize in front of you the beloved, the divine mother, Maharaji, Christ, Buddha, Shiva, whoever, uh, the higher power can be more generic if you wish. And you just imagine this being in front of you as the, the profound embodiment of love and wisdom, forgiveness, and you feel what it's like to be sitting in front of this being, and just their presence begins to purify you, and then you gradually merge with them. You become one with that being. The guru is not something other than self. Maharaji would, it was said to us a few times, you Westerners don't understand, you think I'm this body. It's really a level of consciousness that certain beings are able to embody. And the wisdom that all true teachings eventually end up saying is that we are enlightened already. It is not something to find. It's not something you can ever get away from. It's not something that can be avoided or changed or denied. I mean, it can be denied, but it, it's always going to, it's always going to be there. One just identifies with the feeling of devotion rather than being devoted to something else. You just are devotion. Okay, guru yoga, mantra, digesting emotions, like the mother di digests emotions. There's a wonderful, wonderful quote from Ram Prasad Sen. He was a devotee of Kali, the devouring mother, the fierce mother. He said, oh, mother, in this lifetime, either I will devour you or you will devour me. I vow that it is you that I will devour. So when we're lost in anger at the police or at the Republicans or at the looters or at ourselves or at our neighbor, we're being devoured by the mother. The world is devouring us. When we're angry but we're not lost, we're consciously angry about what's going on in our country, by the ignorance that is driving a lot of behavior, we're devouring the mother. So anger or any emotion, can be the situation where we are devouring or we are being devoured. Are you being devoured right now by interesting ideas? Or are you devouring? We don't have to wait till we turn on the TV and see people beating each other up. Can we 
not be devoured even when we're in the mind, when we're thinking of wonderful, spiritual, amazing ideas, can we at the same time be devouring life moment to moment to moment? So Tantra is, once again, it's not conceptual, it's direct experience, moment to moment, realizing the divine nature of things, particularly who we are ourselves, and having that relationship then with all experience. Another uh, tantric practice is open to grace in every moment by seeing no distinction between the sacred and the mundane. The final practice is, not the final, but the final one I'm going to mention is catching hold of the first moment of perception without naming it, but resting in the feeling, the vibration of the arising perception. It's almost like surfing reality. And you're staying on the board as long as you're not naming, conceptualizing, trying to figure out. You're just right there on that edge, the edge of form and formless, the edge of not knowing. And we just stay on that edge and then we fall off the edge. And we jump back on the surfboard because you got that tether, right? You got that rubber strap that goes from the surfboard to your ankle. You hop back up on it again. Eventually, Tantra has to be about direct experience. It's nice to read things or hear things and get some confidence or some curiosity or something. But it really is having a direct experience that you are that, that it's not something outside. That, that even the difficult is the divine. That so in some way, the, the core of Tantra is seeing difficulty as opportunity rather than something to be surmounted, rather than as a problem. That it, it, it is all the path. It is all what God has been bringing us. I remember we were with Maharaji one day in, in India at the temple up in the Himalayas at Kenshi. And he had gone off in a room somewhere, was talking to some other people. Some Westerners were out talking. And one of Maharaji's older Indian devotees, a guy named Dada Mukherjee, overheard what we were saying. And he said, you Westerners don't get it. You think Maharaji only brings you the good stuff. He says, no, no, he brings you everything. For instance, Ramdas had a stroke. I lost my life savings through Bernie Madoff. My brother, mother, and father died of cancer. I mean, is that is that God's grace or is that God's out of control here and problems are happening? We're not trying to in any way deny or diminish human suffering. I know there are people in this room who have lost children. I have a client right now who's younger and he's just put on hospice. In no way is Tantra saying that we're not human, but that the humanity in a way is internal to the divinity, that they're both there at the same time and to the extent that we can remember the divine aspect that even when we're suffering, even when there is great sadness, even when there's anger, maybe that there, there is pain that we don't have to suffer, that we can go beyond suffering and be with the pain of being in a human body, in a, a human life. I had a father who was never angry in his whole life. When he died and his three younger sisters came to the memorial, they said even as children, he protected them. He was never angry at them. 
And in Buddhism, it's a very, very high state to be beyond anger. So either my father is a very high being or the most repressed Lutheran that ever existed. And I still don't know which it is. <laughs> it's, it's, it's a little complicated. And I get angry at people in traffic, too, because it's a time to let that out. So here's been my experience. Maybe I've said this before. I don't remember what I say anymore to who. But in my life, if, I'm, if I don't meditate a lot, or if I'm not really creative, or if I don't have orgasms, I get angry. Because it's the same energy. It's the same energy. And if I'm meditating a lot, then that angers that, that energy is being channeled, or it can be channeled into a creative pursuit, or it can be channeled into sexuality. But if all of those are pushed aside, then the, the energy has to do something. So it, it, it gets angry at the, the crazy people in traffic. If we look at it in that way, we don't have to judge it so much. An emotion arises, we can express it, we can suppress it, or we can have compassion for what it is that's going on. So that in Western psychology, there's usually two ways of dealing with an emotion. You express it or you suppress it. We know that suppressing doesn't work too well for too long. But at the same time, there is this third possibility that Buddhism points out that before we express or suppress, can be can we be aware of what this feels like? Can we be, can we touch the texture, the quality of what we're feeling, and then trust that we can allow the emotion to be expressed or not expressed, depending on what it is that's appropriate, what's the most compassionate thing for the universe at that point. We can take any negative emotion and use it as the gateway into being fully present and resting in presence. And my experience that very, very frequently, there's a superficial emotion that is covering up a deeper emotion that's covering up an even deeper emotion. And very often the layers are, there's anger on the outside, up in the top layer of the shadow that's covering up sadness, that's covering up fear and anxiety that's covering up fear of death, it's covering up enlightenment, <laughs> okay? So, so uh, imagine that, that somebody cuts you off in traffic. Let's, let's imagine that, not somebody cuts you off in traffic, let's imagine that you're looking at the TV and you're seeing... Uh, George Floyd or police or something, and you're getting angry. Uh, and if if you really pay attention to it and not get caught in concepts about them and me and why and all that stuff, but here's what it feels like, that underneath it, there's probably some sadness that this is what's going on in the world. And if you really pay attention to that and you experience that in your body and you go beyond conceptualization, there is probably some, some sense of fear that uh, I'm separate from all this, that, 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 there's, uh, that things are out of control, that, that I'm, uh, I'm, it's, I'm not putting it too well at this point. I don't know quite how to say it. So that, Underneath the anger is sadness. Underneath the sadness is some fear that this is going to continue or 
whatever it might be for you. And underneath that is this basic fear of separation, where you're just lost in in separate existence. So that you grew up in a family where anger was not suppressed, as opposed to Julianne, who suppressed anger. So she has a harder time with anger. Anger's fine with you. So you go right to the sadness, or maybe even go right to the anxiety, which is not necessarily better. You just have different patterns. And uh, the why is usually not a very useful or productive question. Is what am I feeling now? How how intimately, directly, nakedly can I be with my anger or my sadness or my fear? And going back to this whole tantric structure that we're talking about, this tantric viewpoint, if you will, that that as as long as we can get out of the conceptual and begin to meet these things in the body in a very direct way that it does self-reveal that it is all divine, that, that anger is just as much God as not anger. That, uh, and I have been around uh, many beings who are enlightened or supposedly enlightened, and I've seen them angry. I've seen them sad. I've never seen them afraid, though. Uh, they have the whole range of emotion. They don't get caught in emotion. Emotion just comes and goes, but they don't feel fear. Because fear is based in there's me and something other than me and something other than me might be threatening to what I perceive as me. And they don't have that worldview. But the worldview still is, yeah, there's sadness here. People are suffering. And there's anger here because there's, there's injustice, injustice. There's, there's violence. There's something to be angry about. That anger can be the the stimulus for deep love and compassion. It can also be the stimulus for for deep delusion and getting caught in what it is you're feeling. It's not good or bad. It's just, for most people, it's a difficult emotion because it's so hot and immediate. And for most of us, there's an awful lot of conditioning about, is it okay to be angry or not? I mean, a lot of us grew up in families where Anger was not permitted. I certainly did. I'm talking about there's three levels of practice, Hinayana, Mahayana, Vajrayana, or uh, trust and awareness, embodiment, number one. Number two, having compassion for suffering. And number three, having a tantric relationship. And certainly, it is possible to just pick one of those that one can get enlightened by just doing Vipassana meditation. Or one can get enlightened by doing Mahayana practice, which includes awareness and adds on the, the, the compassion component. What I'm doing is talking about a developmental spiritual path. And so there's two points I'd like to make about it. One is that recent studies by psychologists, Buddhist psychologists, I will admit, have discovered that, yes, mindfulness leads to a greater sense of well-being. But if you add compassion, so now there are two things to do. The movement toward well-being proceeds much more quickly. And recently, just a few months ago, some people in England discovered that if you meditate on emptiness, 
sort of the tantric nature of things, it speeds up things even more. So that these stages are historically the development of Buddhism. And it's not, what's the word here? It's not uh, restricted to Buddhist thought. It's, it's, we could talk about these stages in Hindu or Christian or Judaic or Islamic religious experience. So that, yes, they all take you to the same place. But if, if we do use these developmental stages, for many people, it is uh, more direct and a uh, less cumbersome path in a certain way. The other thing that John is pointing out is true is that the, the boundaries do blur, that they do naturally lead from one to the other. So, for example, there is a woman named Deepama, who was a householder, an older woman living in Calcutta, who had these remarkable enlightenment experiences and became a teacher to a lot of Westerners. And she said... She said, at my stage of practice, I can't distinguish between awareness and loving kindness. If I'm aware of something, of course, I would love it. And if I love something, of course, I have to be aware of it. So that they, her practice had deepened to the point where those were the same thing. So that if we really look at it from the first stage, the stage of embodied awareness, I call it, embodied mindfulness, as you're more present, as you're just trusting being present, doing Vipassana, you begin to get a very direct, intimate, naked perception of how suffering is arising through resistance and attachment. That physical pain or cancer or policemen don't cause suffering. Resistance to those things do. You, you begin to get how suffering arises, so the mind begins to stabilize. And as the mind begins to stabilize because you're not confused about suffering, then that's revealing the heart. You don't even have to do something to open the heart. The heart begins to reveal its uh, inherently open nature because the mind isn't struggling and, and bobbing and weaving to avoid suffering. So now you're in the heart stage. You're able to meet difficult emotions or sensations with a sense of spaciousness emptiness, empty of I, me, mind, that, that we begin to experience the heart as boundlessly spacious. And in this boundlessness, the I thought, the egoic fixation is still there, but it's just one object. It's no longer the subject. It's just one object in the vast spaciousness that is the heart-mind. And that then leads to Tantra, because the power is there because we're not we're not fixated on the eye anymore. The heart has revealed that we don't need to be fixated in the eye. So it's a very natural progression that just by paying attention, the heart opens, and by the heart opening, the, the power of the universe is allowed to flow through us. And there's this other boundary, non-boundary, which we'll talk about next week, that as you go more and more deeply into Tantra and realizing you are the deity and everything is the beloved, that it takes us then into non-duality. But there's not even an I who is the beloved. Working with a passion or a fixation from the first stage, the stage of invocation or uh, mindfulness, 
we we become aware of the fixation and we we gradually transform it with something that's wholesome say anger turning into non-anger from the standpoint of compassion we gradually transform our relationship with anger through compassion from the standpoint of tantra we can instantaneously transmute anger into the energy of the mother. It's just instantaneously, we say anger is just energy. I can just instantaneously transmute it. But in all three of these, we're feeling that we're doing something with it. Finally, in non-duality, there's nobody needing to do anything to anything. And when you go to a non-dual retreat, a Dzogchen retreat, for instance, it's the most relaxing thing in the world. Because you can't be lost. As soon as you get lost, you realize that even the lostness is it. There's nothing you can be experiencing that isn't the pure arising, the perfect manifestation of, of consciousness. So it's not like you've got to concentrate harder or find the right thing. It's all the right thing. And even the part of you that thinks it's not the right thing, which is, <laughs> it's, so what could, be, what could be friendlier than that? Okay, so let's do a guided meditation. Please begin by looking at your motivation. What is the most important thing? What do you want in your deepest heart of hearts? You will die, but you don't know when. And with this motivation, then, please invoke that which you most deeply trust, the embodiment of love, of trust, of truth, the Mother, the Christ, the Buddha, higher power, Buddha Dharma Sangha the unnamed, reaching out, receiving, asking for a relationship. Allowing you to trust that that which arises, no matter what the content, is the perfect next step on the path to realizing wholeness. Letting go of the need to understand or conceptualize or improve meeting experience directly beyond concept. What does it feel like in the body? And bringing this trust also into the body by taking a few grounding breaths, breathing out down through the base of the torso, pushing, pushing energy out through the base of the torso. Inhabiting the root, sense of stability, 
of nourishment, of support. Full out-breath, pushing energy out through the base, easy natural in-breath, receiving this supportive energy. And then in a similar way, centering breath, dropping down into the lower belly with the out-breath. Keeping a strength in the lower belly as you breathe out. A constant sense of strength during the in-breath and the out-breath. Releasing the shoulders, releasing the lower belly, but strength in the lower belly. Centered as if you were paying attention from the belly rather than to it. Allowing thought, sensation, emotion, perception to naturally and easily arise and pass away without uncentering you. And when you do notice resistance, with the next out-breath, easily come back into the centered quality in the lower belly. Then letting this be a brief foundation for opening the heart, breathing directly into the heart, the heart of compassion that can meet resistance with mercy and a fierce tenderness. Whenever there is resistance, whenever there is being hooked, being lost, can you come back to being present through the merciful heart? Letting our pulling back be the inspiration for opening into mercy even a bit more. Being more interested in your relationship, your loving relationship with experience than the content itself. Trusting the loving, compassionate quality of relationship to lead to appropriate response. Exploring this process of dying into love, spaciousness, boundlessly spacious heart, becoming aware that the ego is just another object in the mind.
There is no voice in the mind, no matter how wise it seems to pretend to be, that can't be paid attention to. With compassion. And as the ego becomes just one object in the vast sky of heart-mind, can we begin to notice not just our relationship with experience, but the very nature, the quality of energy in each arising, the aliveness, the awakeness, the presence. Each arising, an opportunity for awakening. Going beyond the notion that there is a higher being outside of us, outside of our internal identification with the lower ego. The beloved can only be everything. One identifies with the feeling of devotion rather than being devoted to something. That which you invoked in the beginning is none other than your own true nature and the true nature of all that is arising. From this perspective, any emotion, whether it be anger or kindness or sadness or contentment, is simply the pure expression of true nature of consciousness itself. devouring the mother moment to moment. And in this tantric relationship, there is still open-hearted compassion for all beings who are suffering. There is still embodied mindfulness, supporting the open heart, spaciously revealing the tantric reality.
May all beings be free from suffering and realize their inherently free nature. More than most practices, Tantra is about being in the world, being in the senses, being in the body, seeing the body as a microcosm for all reality, not feeling that enlightenment is transcending our humanity, but fully inhabiting it. <laughs> 